Chapter 8, Part 2 of Tales of a Vanishing River. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Hirsch. Tales of a Vanishing River by Earl H. Reed. The Predicaments of Colonel Peets. The newspaper article continued. The state's attorney made an able and scholarly address to the court and presented a masterly review of the evidence. Hopkins contented himself with claiming that no evidence had been adduced to justify the court in holding his client. No false whiskers or gray coat had been produced, and no witness had positively sworn to the prisoner's identity. On the contrary, the only witness who had conversed with the alleged robber, Mr. J. Milton Tuttle, had failed to connect him with the crime, and Miss Simpson, who had long and carefully observed both men, had declared under her solemn oath that they were not the same. He claimed that the cord that held his client was a rope of sand, and had the effrontery to comment sarcastically on the account of the pursuit of the flying burglar that appeared exclusively in our last week's issue. He indulged in sardonic levity at the expense of the public-spirited posse, and remarked that it was queer that its dog had shown a preference for the society of an alleged thief. He suggested that the two bales of hay that were retained on the pursuit wagon were better adapted for food for the posse than for a barricade. The outburst of indecent laughter that greeted this impudent sally was promptly suppressed by the court, who threatened to clear the room if anything of the kind was repeated. The court sternly rebuked the offending attorney, and cautioned him to confine his remarks strictly to the merits of the case before the court. Hopkins apologized to the court and claimed that humor was a malady of his early youth, and that he had never been entirely cured. The court retired to its library and took the case under advisement for an hour, during which time the crowd waited in anxious suspense. When the court returned, it held Colonel Peets to the circuit court, placing his recognizance at $3,000, in default of which the prisoner was remanded to the custody of the sheriff. Much satisfaction was expressed at the decision of the court. Judge Mark W. Giddings, our able and learned justice of the peace, is a man of lofty attainments and an ornament to the bench. He has one of the finest law libraries in the county. He is of fine old New England stock, his ancestors having come over in the Mayflower. He is one of the oldest and most valued subscribers to this newspaper. The press forms of this issue of our paper were held until proceedings in this case were disposed of, that the incohate attorney representing the prisoner began before the court now in session at the courthouse. He asked for a writ of habeas corpus, and his client has been turned loose on the community. We may say that while it may be that no jury would have convicted this man, Peets, who admits that he was once an enemy of his country, and while the testimony was strongly conflicting, 
the opinion is strong in this community that the honorable justice of the peace rendered a perfectly just decision the opinions of this journal have always been impartial and under the circumstances as is far be it from us to express one but not to mention any names there is a certain fresh young lawyer in this town who has a tendency to be a smarty and a cute aleck and to butt in on things that do not concern him it may be to his interest to lay a little lower a word to the wise is sufficient in addition to this there is a certain alien resident in this county of military pretensions who lives by the sobbing waters of a certain river and again we do not mention names who had better not be caught wearing false whiskers when he visits this town and now said the colonel with a patronizing wave of his hand after he had given me a still later copy of the paper i desire you to look at this account of the sequel of this distressing affair on the editorial page i read a public outrage it is far from the desire of this journal to discuss the personal interests or affairs of its editor and proprietor the index as the public well knows has ever been the fearless advocate of fair play for every citizen and for every human being however humble before the law its motives have always been above reproach notwithstanding the fact that it is the county's greatest newspaper unselfishly devoted to the public interest it never blows its own horn it rarely mentions itself in its own columns it scorns to publish matter in its own interest but the time has come when its clarion voice must be raised to such a pitch that it may be heard throughout the length and breadth of the county so that the public conscience may be awakened and forever make impossible a repetition of such an outrage as occurred in front of the post office on last saturday afternoon as is well known by all the editor of this paper who is also its proprietor was publicly attacked by colonel peets the scoundrel and erstwhile prisoner at the bar of justice who figured so prominently and so exclusively in the affair of the robbery of the safe in the county treasurer's office some weeks ago a handful of our whiskers was seized and twisted away by this vile miscreant with the supposedly funny remark that he wanted them for a disguise we were forced to our knees on the dirty sidewalk and commanded to apologize for certain statements that have appeared in our paper we were belabored with a rawhide whip and kicked into the gutter by this burly old brute as humiliating as these things are it is necessary to mention them in order to properly lay before the public the frightful enormity of the outrage it is and always has been the policy of this paper to hew to the line and let the chips fall where they may the index thinks before it strikes and it never retracts if editors are to be publicly assaulted if their persons are not sacred if the freedom of the press is to be trammelled and muzzled by supposed private rights of individuals and their likes and dislikes 
if publishers are to be beaten up or beaten down with impunity or with rawhide whips and are to be coerced into cowardly silence by fear of personal violence then our republic with its vaunted ideals is a stupendous failure far be it from us to complain or put forth our private wrongs but we consider that we have been a martyr to the lawlessness of this community and to the fearless and outspoken attitude of our paper an attack upon the person of the editor of a newspaper is an attack upon the sacred foundations of human liberty the public will be glad to know that the execrable villain and ruffian who assaulted us is now immured in the county jail where he was sent by that wise and upright justice of the peace the hon mark w giddings it is to be devoutly hoped that when the term of his just imprisonment expires his presence in the county will be no longer tolerated for the miserable cowards and loafers who witnessed the premeditated violence upon us in front of the post-office and did not interfere this paper has the most withering contempt their craven names are known and this journal will remember them to constable hawkins who arrested the assailant this paper on behalf of the public extends its thanks constable hawkins is an officer of whom our town may well be proud we wish him a long life of health and happiness we may mention parenthetically that constable hawkins and his charming wife sundayed with us two weeks ago and a delightful time was had by one and all to the misguided and mentally unbalanced females who are daily sending flowers and sundry cooked dainties to the county jail this paper has nothing to say with the exception of one of them who was a witness at the trial and who shall here be nameless they all have male relatives whose duty is plain the names of these women are known and will be preserved in the archives of this paper for future reference there are certain rumors being whispered about on our streets that from high motives of public policy will not find a place in our columns until later the sheriff is being quietly and severely criticized by many citizens whose good opinion is worth something to him at election time for permitting these indulgences to a criminal in his charge we have always given our unqualified support to sheriff butts when he has been a candidate and we hope that we will not be compelled to change our opinion regarding his fitness for the office he will do well to ponder the eye of the index is upon him the editor of this paper is pleased to announce to relieve the public mind that we are recovering from our undeserved injuries and will soon be ourselves again we feel deeply indebted to dr ignace stitt for the wonderful professional skill with which he attended us the doctor's practice is increasing rapidly and he is now the foremost physician in our county his office is over ed bang's drug store and he is among the most valued subscribers of this paper we and our wife thank our kind friends who have sent us watermelons and other delicacies during our confinement as a stern challenger of injustice and an alert defender of the right 
the index will ever, as in the past, be in the forefront. Its battle-axe will gleam in the turmoil of the conflict, and on it will shine our mottoes, Six Semper Tyrannis, and Honey Soikimali Pence. I laid the paper down with the conviction that if the colonel's life previous to his arrival in the river country had been as rapid as he had been living it since he came, his memoirs would be quite a large volume. Now, sir, he said, I want to relate to you the inside history of that robbery, sir. I want to show you how it is possible for a perfectly innocent man, with perfectly good intentions, to get into a predicament in this godforsaken northern country. I was, of course, compelled much against my wish, to hosswhip the editor of that rotten sheet. He was not a gentleman, and I could not challenge him, sir, and it was matter of personal honor. The facts are substantially as he states in that sizzling angel song that you have just read. I want to say, sir, that I never spent a more pleasant thirty days in my life than I spent in that jail. I was there in a good cause, and I am sorry it was not sixty days. The sheriff treated me with perfect curtsy, and I was called on and congratulated by many people who had strong private opinions of that editor. Those noble women made my incarceration a pleasure, and I may say, sir, without vanity, that I have never been oblivious or insensible to the effect that I have always had upon ladies. Soft and beseeching eyes have been cast upon me all my life, sir. I discovered in that jail that iron bars cannot destroy beautiful visions. I was provided with pepper, and I was enabled to do a great deal of work on my memoirs and I have included in them the events of the past few months. But what I started to tell you was the unrevealed facts of that robbery, sir. In order that you may get a clear idea of just what happened, I must take you back to the awful days of a war. There was a high-born southern gentleman in my regiment, sir, named Major Speed. He came from one of the best families in Tennessee. There was a most unfortunate personal resemblance between us, and even when we were together our best friends could hardly tell us apart. In order not to continue to embarrass our friends, we drew straws to decide who should raise a chin-beard in addition to his moustache. The Major lost, and I still have my military moustache without any hostile whiskers to spoil it. I may say, sir, that I have no doubt that my moustache had its effect in making my stay at the jail delightful. The Major and I have always kept our correspondence up. He came to see me just before that explosion at the courthouse. He was in that town when it took place, and he was the man who was pursued by that posse and that damned dog whose favor he won with a piece of bologna sausage. After the Major entered the marsh, he came directly to my house and explained the whole affair. We sunk the boat he came in with some stones in the river. That infernal Milt Tuttle, 
who was the click at the treasurer's office was the scoundrel that got the money. His folks came from Tennessee, and he knew the major. He was aware that the major's circumstances were much reduced, and that he had lost what he had left in the world at Cod's. He knew that the major would do almost anything to retrieve his fortunes. The love of money was always the trouble with the major. But we all have to be tolerant of the weaknesses of our friends, sir. That scoundrel Milt Tuttle sent money to Tennessee for my friend the major to come up here. He did not know me or that I knew the major. When the major came north, he came directly to see me and spent several days at my place. We went down on the marsh together. He told me about Milt Tuttle and said he would come back and pay me a longer visit a little later. My friend Major Speed went to the county seat, and the duck scoundrelly plan of Milt Tuttle was laid before him. In a moment of weakness the Major fell, and consented to blow open that safe and divide what he found with Milt Tuttle. The tools and the explosive compound were hidden in the office by Milt Tuttle, and during several visits he explained to the Major how he was to proceed. He gave him a duplicate key to the side entrance of the office around the end of the hall, and a map of the route he was to take after he had finished his walk, and on this map was the place where he was to leave half of what he found in the safe. He was to cross the marsh and make his way south to Tennessee after it was all over. You can imagine the astonishment and chagrin of the Major when he found the safe empty of funds, after he had worked all day to blow it open. He was hornswoggled by this infernal thief of a milk tuttle. He had taken every cent before the Major came, and left the Major in the lutch to face all the consequences and to get away the best he could. When the Major came to me that night and told me his tale, I was astounded. Of course I do not approve of robbery, but the Major had committed no robbery. He had taken absolutely nothing from that safe, and he was as innocent of robbery as a child unborn. Milt Tuttle was the thief, and on his ill-gotten wealth he went off somewhere for his health. But he was stricken by a vengeful providence with pneumonia, and he is now dead and there is no way of proving his dastardly connection with the affair. I told the Major that he had been made a cat's paw, and that he had better go home as fast as he could. He was without funds, and, unfortunately, I did not have any to lend him, so he started for the south on foot. That was the last I saw of the Major, and I had a letter from one of the former officers of our regiment that the Major is now dead. I assume, sir, that he died of a broken hat, all on account of the villainy of that dirty thief of a milk tuttle. When I was unjustly and unfortunately dragged into that affair, I could have told the whole story, but I felt bound to protect my friend the Major, who fought under me for four years. 
he twice saved my life on the field and for such a man no matter what his failings might be i was bound to make any sacrifice i could have gone on the stand and pointed my finger at the thief but of what avail the attorney who represented me in those disgraceful proceedings advised me to keep my seat as the state had no case whatever that mutton-headed old bill that was supposed to be a court bound me over but i was soon released and my friend's secret was not in jeopardy i have now expiated the penalty of the nolan law for whipping that rascally editor my attorney also pounded him to a jelly it is my intention to horsewhip tipton posey for he was the one that started the talk that resulted in all those legal proceedings and during the thirty days that i am in jail for that it is my intention to complete my novel in which as i told you is to be woven my memoirs it is a good thing for milt tuttle that he had pneumonia for if he was not deceased i would fill him full of holes for the dishonour he brought to my friend the major and that i would leave the north for ever i shall never blacken the memory of major speed by using his name with the story of the blowing open of the safe in my book i shall use another name sir and his secret shall be for ever safe and his memory will be untainted for the major never stole a dollar he can stand before the greatest court where he has now gone with a guiltless and stainless soul i was much interested in the colonel's narrative and after talking over some of the details we retired for the night i had quietly enjoyed the naive reasoning and the chivalrous devotion of the colonel to his wartime friend there was pathos in the tale of sacrifice and several times i saw moisture in the old soldier's eyes as he dilated upon the cruelty of his position in the affair of the safe his conceptions of right and wrong were refreshing and his penchant for taking the law into his own hands was evidently going to get him into more predicaments but it was useless to argue with him i felt sorry about posey's coming castigation but as tip was abundantly able to take care of himself i concluded not to worry over it on our way down the river the next morning the colonel reverted to major speed's ill-starred visit i presume that you would think sir that the interests of the living are paramount to those of the dead and that i ought to tell major speed's story to the world his memory and the memory of that black-hearted valet milt tuttle would suffer and tuttle's ought to suffer but my vindication would be complete naturally i do not enjoy being looked at askance and i sometimes think that i ought to remove the stigma that now rests on my name i advised him to let matters remain as they were inasmuch as he could produce no proof of the facts and little would be gained by stirring up the affair but i do not need proof of facts they would have my word of honour sir i explained the uncertain value of a word of honour in that part of the country 
I refrained from telling him that I thought his reputation would not be much improved by his explanation, for he would at least still be regarded as an accessory after the fact, because of his admission of the protection to speed. By the way, Colonel, I asked in order to change the subject, what did you finally do about Pud Calkins? Pud Calkins, I killed him, sir, at Vicksburg. That cuss disappeared entirely from my memoirs while I was in jail, and I assure you, sir, that I heaved a sigh of relief when that man fell. I can now go ahead with my combination novel and memoirs without his bobbing up and down in the plot every time I sit down to write. It occurred to me that the casualties among those whom the fates whirled into the colonel's orbit were becoming rather numerous. I'm very sorry to tell you that when you come down here again you will probably not find me, he continued. I'm in a very bad predicament about the place where I live. As you know, I inherited that place in good faith, but I find there has been a mortgage on it that I didn't know anything about. The damned editor of that scurrilous sheet has in some way got possession of that mortgage. I'm unable to meet its obligations, sir, and I must move, probably this winter. I will go back to Tennessee, where the sun shines without expense to anybody, and where a gentleman commands respect, even though he is unfortunate. I may have to walk to Tennessee, but I will make a short call at the home of that buzzard that runs that newspaper the evening that I go away, sir. The colonel and I had spent happy days together, and it was with genuine sadness that I bade him farewell a few days later. He was a mellow old soul, ruled by emotions, and not by reason, drifting aimlessly on a sea of troubles, totally lost to every consideration, except his childish vanity and the memories of a threadbare chivalry. He easily adjusted his conscience to any point of view that conformed to his interest, and suffered keenly from sensitiveness. Fate had thrown him into an environment with which he could not mingle, and it was perhaps better that he should go. When all else failed, there was a world in his imaginative brain in which he could live, and woe to those who have not these realms of fancy when the shadows come. When I visited the river the following spring, I arranged with my friend Muskrat Hyatt to provide me with the shelter of his stranded houseboat, and to act as pusher and general utility man in my expeditions on the river and marsh. Rat was always interesting, and I anticipated a delightful two weeks. One of the first trips we made was down to the big marsh, where we intended to camp for a day or two on a little island that was scarcely ever visited. It was thirty or forty yards long and half as wide. There were a few trees, some underbrush, and fallen timber on the islet. The place was deserted, except for a blue heron that winged away in awkward flight as we approached. There was no reason for stopping there but a wayward fancy and a desire to see the vast marsh in its different moods. 
After we landed, I asked Rat about the colonel. The colonel's place was sold under a mortgage last fall, and that old maid that swore for him at the trial bid it in, and it's in her name. And now the colonel's married the old maid, so there ye are. That old feller come down to the store one morning, and him and Tip had a fight, and Tip got licked. The colonel and Seth Mussy had come in a buggy and they was goin' on from Tips to the county seat to see the editor of the paper. It was all about that safe-blowin' case, and the colonel accused Tip of startin' all the talk about him. Bill Wirick and me got a rig and went to the county seat, for we thought the colonel was gonna lick the editor again, and we wanted to see the fun, but the editor was out of town. The colonel went up to see the old maid, and they was married the next day. I guess she had some money, for they took the cars and said they was going down south. The colonel went to the postmaster and told him to tell the editor when he got home that if he ever put the colonel's name in his paper again, or any name that sounded like his, he'd kill him and I guess the editor believed it, for he didn't mention nothing about the wedding when he got back. People don't think the colonel blowed open that safe after all. He never flashed no wealth around afterwards, and the way he beat up that editor for saying things about him sort of squared him up. We erected our little tent, and Rat busied himself with collecting fuel. He attacked a long, hollow log with his axe. When it was split open, we found an old gray coat that had at some time been stuffed into the decayed interior. We laid the coat out on the ground, and Rat extracted a discolored brass key from one of the pockets and a wad of hairy material that proved to be a set of false chin whiskers. In a damaged manila envelope that we found in an inside pocket, was a certificate of the honorable discharge of Jasper Montgomery Peets as a private in the Confederate Army. The mildewed relics with their eloquent though silent story were convincing. I suppose he thought that gray coat was getting too popular with posses, and he concluded to shed it, remarked Rat. Say, wasn't that feller a peach? I agreed that he was. I sat for a long time on the sloping bank of the islet and mused over the soulmates that, like migrating songsters, had winged their way to the balmy southland when the leaves had fallen and the skies had become gray. I thought of Anastasia's hungry heart and the precarious resting place it had found. The colonel's plot had certainly been woven to a consistent end. The mysterious veiled lady had glided into its web, and there was a wedding. End of chapter 8, part 2 Recording by Tom Hirsch